Welcome to Theology for the People. This is Pastor Nick Cady, and I'm joined once again today by Pastor Mike Neglia from Cork, Ireland. Hey, hey, Mike, hey. I hey, am so is, glad. Two times in a row. What a treat. Yeah, and I think part, partly it's just great to talk to you, Mike. We should do this more often, Nick. <laughs> talk you know, to I each s- other. <laughs> I said this on a previous episode, and so I only have a few jokes anyway, but um, they say that you know podcasting is what men in their 30s do so they can have meaningful conversations. And yeah. um, kind of true. Yeah, yeah I, I saw that joke a while ago, and then I laughed, and then I was like, oh, wait, it's actually really true. <laughs> yeah. You get all of a sudden like super self-disclosing and um, it kind of forces you to be a good like active listener as well. Whereas maybe sometimes in real life we're we're not. Yeah, for sure. You have to be fully engaged during the time that you're talking. Well, today we are doing part two of a two-part series on Christocentric hermeneutics or Christ-centered hermeneutics. And last time we talked a lot about what it is and how to do it. But today, what I wanted to talk about with you is some objections to uh, Christ-centered hermeneutics. Uh, Mike, did you know that not everybody agrees with us that this is the proper and accurate way to read the Bible? Yeah, Nick. I mean, I've, I've, had, I've seen so many people like maybe discover it or hear about it and be excited about it. So that's, that's kind of my overwhelming majority of experience of being able to to either show or tell people this this method of interpretation and application and communication and see people get really excited. I've also seen one or two people um, really have their head kind of cock and really think like, I, and then I've had some conversations one-on-one with people who aren't that enthusiastic. And then thanks to you, I've also uh, read online of some actual, you know, thoughtful uh, critique, not just people that hear it for the first time and think, I'm not so sure about that, but there's been people that have, uh, you know, given it some proper thought and have landed on different conclusions. And we're going to, we're going to clear it up, Nick, you and me today (laughs) on this podcast. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's what we're here to do. I think at least we're here to respond to some of these accusations, or not accusations, they are mm, more like yeah. um, critiques and impossible pushback. But here's the, here's the thing. I think that it's actually good for our listeners to hear the other side of it, right? You can't actually grow unless you hear uh, maybe what would be the argument against a Christ-centered hermeneutic so that we can yeah. respond well and, and see if this is actually... Uh, the right way to be reading the Bible. Yeah. And maybe just at the very beginning, like, you know, to say that these these people who um, who disagree with this, maybe, like, they are not, like, Christ-rejecting, Bible-denying people. Um, you know, the, 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 the kind of objections we're going to interact with are from fellow believers who, you know, believe in, like, the inspiration of Scripture and want to be faithful. And they have a slightly different understanding of what faithfulness looks like. So... Um, definitely yeah, want to honor, honor them truly and not say, ah, oh, these Judaizers, these this or that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I think that their pushback comes from a place of wanting to read the Bible with honesty and, uh, and with accuracy. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think the other thing to keep in mind is that we use multiple hermeneutics when we're reading the Bible, right? It's not that the Christ-centered hermeneutic is the only one that we use. We're constantly using various lenses, and we use different lenses at different times for different reasons. Um, but this is a pretty important one. I think it shapes how we read the entire Bible and how we preach it and present it. Um, so, why don't we just dive in? So, just so that people know where these objections are coming from, I had a conversation with a friend and he, he kind of turned me on to a friend of his who's a seminarian and an author. And he has uh, written some things on a different theological topic. But this one, you know, he said, this guy doesn't like Christ-centered hermeneutics. And I said, well, please have him write out for me why, and maybe we could discuss them. And so he's given me eight reasons here why he doesn't disagree with them. So we're just going to go through these one by one. I'll read them out. And then uh, we will respond to them. All right, so number one is this. One reason that he disagrees with Christ-centered hermeneutic is he says it replaces exegesis with imagination. So, Mike, how would you describe the word exegesis for any of our listeners who aren't quite sure what that means? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I, I can't give a textbook definition uh, on the spot. If we could pause, I could go look it up. But um, essentially, it means to bring the, the meaning out of something. You know, exa, yeah, it means like to bring the, the interpretation out of something. So you, you look into the, the passage, the scripture, and you bring the message or the interpretation out of it. Yeah, as opposed to imposing the meaning that you want the text to have or the thing that you want to use the text to say, this is the opposite, right? This is drawing out yeah. the correct meaning of the text. And so he says it replaces doing that exegesis with imagination. He gives an example from the story that we talked about last week, Charles Spurgeon, talking about how every town and village in England has a, uh, a high street, or the main street as we call mm-hmm. it in the U.S., and then a road which leads out from there to the great metropolis of the scriptures, which is Christ. Um, here's the quote that he says from Charles Spurgeon. I have never found a text that did not have a good uh, road to Christ in it, but if I ever do find one that does not have a road to Christ in it, I will make one. And I think right. this is a bit of a summary because I know that the actual quote, he says something like, I will jump over hedge and bush and find a way to get to my Savior because unless a sermon has the savor of Christ in it, it can do no good. Mm-hmm. So he's saying that um, Charles Spurgeon even admitted that even if the text doesn't have Christ in the text, he will find a way to put Christ in the text and make a way to Christ. Uh, what would be your... Initial responses to that, Mike? Well, I would say, I mean, yeah, there's a little bit of hyperbole from from Spurgeon, who was apparently pretty funny in his day. Um, Some of the humor carries through, so I think he's being slightly hyperbolic. Uh, But at the same time, I think with all that we've talked about from our last episode, um, understanding that the Bible is a unified story that does uh, connect to God's God's salvation and God's restoration of all things through the the sending of his son, Jesus, um, and raising him and exalting him as king over the, the renewed universe. Like everything connects to that, either in showing a need for it, showing the act itself, showing an implication of it, or even answering the question, how then shall we live in light of this? So it's either showing us um, the reason why this great plan of redemption um, is necessary, and then simultaneously, or or not simultaneously, or also showing like what life in this kingdom looks like—the kingdom that is already here but not yet in full. So I think that yeah, everything has its place before, during, or after um, the saving event of Christ's incarnation, dying and rising. Yeah, I would say that I have heard people who who hold to a Christocentric hermeneutic they actually take issue with this statement as well. I've heard them say, um, you know, I don't agree with that part. That's not, that's not what Christ-centered hermeneutics is. It's not just making stuff up so that you can talk about Jesus. Um, hmm. But I think, like you're saying, we need to understand that he's said, saying this probably tongue-in-cheek, right? He's saying it um, to be, yeah, hyperbole. He's saying it to be funny. But here's the other thing. This statement that he makes, it would make sense, though, if it comes from a conviction that the only correct way to read the scriptures is with the understanding that the Bible is not just a bunch of random stories that give some insights into God, but the Bible is one cohesive story, that it's a book about Jesus, that it's a united narrative that's about Jesus and ultimately about the redemption that God has worked in the world through him and will bring to completion. So, um, the, it kind of does make sense that in some way every passage, ultimately, whether directly or as part of a bigger part of the story, does point to him. Now, the ways that it points to him will be different. Yeah. And um, I guess I would say that I think this is a caricature, uh, or in a way, a bit of a misrepresentation of what Christo centric hermeneutics is all about. Now, maybe in some cases, it's a it's portraying Christocentric hermeneutics at its worst, right? Like when it's done poorly. Um, but I kind of don't feel like it's a it's a fair critique of what we're actually doing. Yeah, and I have maybe some additional comments on this, but I think that might actually tie in much better with like the eighth thing on the list about responsibly dealing with what actually is there. So. 
I'd, I'd love to, to circle back to those thoughts uh, once we get to number eight. Okay. If I remember by the time we get to number eight, then I will ask you. But if not, maybe make a note and we'll make sure that we get it. I'm writing okay. it down in my field notes right now. Perfect. I'm, I've got my field notes here as well. Mm. All right. So <laughs> the second one. So that was the first one, that it replaces exegesis with imagination. The second critique here, he says, is this, or second objection. He says this is tied to the first, and he says objective meaning is abandoned. Hmm. Now, this is actually um, uh, something I've heard multiple times, right? I've heard it in different ways. One of the ways that uh, somebody else put it recently, when we asked, even in our, our Facebook group for Expositors Collective, we asked, you know, what objections have you heard or do you have to ex- right. uh, Christ-centered hermeneutics? And one guy said, um, well, in some cases, it's almost like they skip over what the text is actually talking about just to find the way to Jesus. And this mm-hmm, is, mm-hmm. to stick with Spurgeon's analogy, this would be like skipping the main street or kind of bypassing the main street in order to take the highway, which leads to yes. London yes. uh, or, or Christ. Or like grabbing onto the, the rope hanging from the hot air balloon and hovering over the face of England to be dropped off in London. Like with your feet barely brushing against some chimneys on your way. Yeah. That's not the best way. (laughs) So do you have any responses to that one, Mike? Well, yeah, I I mean, hundred percent, like there is meaning in the text and so much of hermeneutics, which is what we've been talking about for this episode and the previous one. And then also your other ones with um, your previous esteemed guests. Um, but yeah, we want to highlight the meaning of, of the Bible and the individual um, verses and paragraphs and chapters and their books. We want to highlight that. And however, it's not only the meaning of the individual stories, it's also the significance of what they play. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, someone was talking about how there's two hermeneutical concepts, meaning and significance. So it's like, mm-hmm. what does it mean? And to find out what something means, we can use a dictionary to find out what the exact words mean. To find out the significance of something, you need to understand how it fits in, in the story. Um, somebody used the example of the English word run. Run means a lot of things. You could mm-hmm. run for office. You could go for a jog. Um, a, a woman can get a run in her stockings. There could be a run on the, on the banks. You know, all, And there's probably even more. I'm just thinking off the top of my head. Um, but so the use of the word run isn't defined simply by its meaning, but also by its significance. Where is this word being used in a sentence? Who is saying it? Why are they saying it? So um, when I say objective meaning is, is abandoned, I think, well, no, we really care about the objective meaning and the objective significance of it. What role does it play in God's unfolding plan of redemption? And why did the human author write it? And why did the divine author include it in, in the scripture? So, Rather than abandoning the objective meaning, we want to dig deep into it and then also answer the significance question. What's the significant about this? Yeah, that's a great point. You know, I think that I've seen this done, actually. Um, And I can give an example of someone who did exactly what he's uh, critiquing and saying that. and, And so here's the example. It comes from somebody who's teaching from Isaiah. I can't remember which chapter, but it was a chapter that deals with justice. Mm-hmm. And it was talking about, and I think this is a, a common theme that runs through many of the minor prophets, right? God's concern for justice. Yeah. Now this person was saying, justice, yes, this passage is about justice, and the greatest justice in the world was that, you know, God poured out his wrath upon Jesus. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and therefore uh, justice was done, and uh, we who are sinners will be redeemed and saved. Now that's true, but he also skipped over the fact that this is a passage about justice. Right, And it's speaking about temporal justice. It's speaking about how God is upset about people abusing and taking advantage of other people. I mean, don't you think that we should actually teach that? That's something that we should teach. Yes. 
that has so much application for where we are at as a society today, for things that are going on in the world. There are people in our churches who have been the victims of injustice, and they need to know that God cares about it. And He doesn't just care about it in the eternal sense. He also Mm -hmm. cares about it in the temporal sense. That's why those books were written. The people who originally read those passages, they understood them to mean that God very much cares about the fact that you are suffering injustice right now, and He is going to deal with it. But even in that, the dealing with justice was a future event. It was the day of the Lord, or one of multiple days of the Lord, which will culminate in the ultimate day of the Lord. But there we go. Now we're talking about Jesus again. So, what we need to do is teach the passage itself. In other words, travel the whole of the main street. Don't skip it. Don't bypass it. Don't take the hot air balloon that carries you over it and drops you in London. But deal with it fully and, and teach the passage. So, I think this is the objection that he makes that I think is is relevant, but I don't think that this is a reason to reject uh, Christ-centered hermeneutics. Yeah, I find that you and I were in a maybe a, an interesting situation where part of me wants to rush and say, oh no, that's not it. But then also, realistically, it's like, well, well, yeah, some people do do that. And then also, mm-hmm. I probably have, um, you know, in my early years and hopefully not, not recently, but yeah, you do want to let the text speak for itself and, you know, a contemporary of Isaiah, uh, Micah, you know, that famous verse, you know, he has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to, to do justice, to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. You don't want to take that and then, you know, mute it. Like you're on a Zoom call and you're coughing, you know, and you want to mute it. Um, you don't just take that and mute it and say, but listen, we can't walk humbly, but I know one who has walked humbly. We can't love justice, but the justice was accomplished at the cross. Like actually what the Bible says is that those should characterize our life. And that's what it means to walk humbly with God. And that's what he calls us to do. And so I would say, when I think about like the, the Old Testament um, I, I think about the passage in um, 1 Peter chapter 1, where it speaks about the prophets. We're talking about prophets. The prophets, they wrote these things. They didn't even fully understand what it was. Like what you were speaking mm-hmm. about earlier, Nick, they knew there's a future, this this day of the Lord, and what does that look like? How, you know, But they knew that there was a forward-facing dimension to it. And we, who are on the other side of the cross, along with Peter and, and his readers, we're able to actually understand it more than they. And so, um, but it doesn't mean that it means less, it means more. So it's not less, but more. So should we walk humbly and do justice? Yep. And do we have a humble, walking, justice-bearing Savior? Yep. And his name is Jesus. Mm. Yeah, that's well said. Um, Let's move on to the third point that he has here. His third objection is, he says, and I think this is one of his stronger ones. Mm -hmm. He said, it is not actually Christocentric, but actually it is egocentric. He goes on to explain, the doctrine of Christology covers the person and works of Christ. The works of Christ can be divided into that which he did prior to the Incarnation that which he did on earth, and that which he does after the incarnation, that which is during his life on earth can be divided into his teachings and actions. Why is it then that this Christocentric approach doesn't actually develop a comprehensive Christology? It always goes straight to what Jesus does for me, me, me. And he actually has a quote here from Brian Chappell's book, Christ-Centered Preaching. And he says, here's the procedure for Christ-centered exposition. Number one, identify the redemptive principle evident in the text. Number two, determine what application these principles have um, in the lives of the original hearers. And number three, apply the redemptive principles to contemporary life. So, Mike, what would be your response to the claim that Christ-centered hermeneutics are not actually focused on Jesus, that they they don't Mm -hmm. do a full Christology, but they're really just focused on what does Jesus do for me? Okay. Yeah. That's, that's really great. And it kind of, yeah, it kind of gets to like, what is the, the gospel? You know, if, if we use words interchangeably about Christ-centered preaching or gospel-oriented preaching, like, is the gospel that Jesus saves me? Just like what I said earlier, Yes, but more. <laughs> it's, it's, it's more than that, but it's nothing less than that. So there is that personal touch point, you know, where I could say I, I experience the benefit of the gospel 
about 20 years ago when I became a Christian individually, when I encountered Christ and um, yeah, repented of my sins and was, was redeemed by him. So there's that personal aspect, but I've come to realize, I think we all know the, the gospel is, it's big, it's global. It's, it's backwards reaching, it's forward. It's going to be cosmic one day. And so uh, there is, I guess, a tendency or a way to reduce the gospel to, I get my sins forgiven, I get to go to heaven. Um, when in reality, the, the plan of God's redemption, as I tried to mention earlier on, is that it, it's going to involve the inauguration of King Jesus over the universe. There's going to be people like, you know, knees that are bowing above the earth and beneath the earth. It's going to, it's going to have this like incredible cosmic implications. And if there is just a a truncated gospel. And when I say truncated, you know, it's like a tree, like the roots are gone, the branches are gone. It's just the trunk. And I think the trunk, the core is that Jesus had mercy on a sinner like me. Wow. But it also goes far deeper and goes far up higher than that. And so if there's preachers that are preaching a truncated gospel, then gospel-centered preaching is going to often always come down to, hey, listen, da 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 but Jesus died for you or Jesus died for you and your, your felt needs. So that's, I think that does carry weight. And maybe it just comes to like our understanding of like a gospel that is too small or too individual when it's actually quite, quite big and cosmic and um, for, for the world rather than for individuals. Yeah. And I would also add that I think that he is uh, taking issue with a matter of application, not a matter of exposition or hermeneutics actually at this mm. point. Mm. This is how it is applied and how it is um, talked about, right? As far as uh, applying the principles to contemporary lives or what is Jesus doing for me? Now, I think that you can take the reverse of this and say that um, a non-Christ-centered hermeneutic is actually what I tend to refer to as an egocentric hermeneutic, which says that, um, now I take it not as, what does God do for me, but what do I need to do for God? Because that's, right. that's what right. happens on the other end, where you say, let's say you take a passage about justice, like we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. but you only talk about how God wants you to care more about justice yeah. and that you need to try harder and do better in the area of justice. Um, see, that doesn't actually, I don't think that actually helps people. Timothy Keller, he talks about this. He says that basically he would summarize, and I think he's using some hyperbole here, but he would say, he could says you could basically break down all of his sermons into one outline. And that outline is, here's what the text says. Here's what the text says that you ought to do. You know that you ought to do it, and you haven't done it, but Christ has, and through him you can too, right? Through his life in hmm. you. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's really actually helpful because if all you do is say, hey, you should try and be more just, like here's a, here's a list of things that you should do that you're not doing well enough, but we don't actually give them the power to do it or the liberating knowledge that Jesus has done for you what you cannot do on your own. So to me, this is, a, number one, it's a matter of um, application. And number two, I would say that a non-Christ-centered hermeneutic is also egocentric, but it lacks the power of of what Jesus has actually done. So, mm-hmm. in that sense, I guess I'm saying that Christ-centered hermeneutics is not egocentric. Yeah, and, and you know that was one of my actually my first thoughts, Nick. But I didn't want I didn't want to start like that. I didn't want to start off like, well, you know, I know I am, but what are you? You know, and I think like on this, I'm. I'm I said this to my my neighbor once, and he he cracked up. But I wasn't trying to be funny. I just was like, "Hey, you know, kind of by nature, I'm I'm quite a self-deprecating person, uh, you know, probably to a fault. I'm very self-deprecating." And then he thought that was pretty funny, and uh, he like thought it was the funniest thing I ever said. And it was actually just whatever. So I'm being self-deprecating in that I want to take some of this and really own it and say, yeah, yeah I guess there is kind of a, um, a a person-oriented focus to some of this because Christ redeems people, but then. To also say, uh, yeah, but have you heard like other preaching ever? Um, when it's when it's just simply, you got to be more just. And what have you done for the cause of justice lately? And what are you going to resolve to do next? 
that's that's ego-centered as well too. And so if it comes down to an issue of application or if just the, the swath of preaching in the evangelical world these days tends to be through an individual lens, then, you know, maybe guilty as charged or also just like maybe everyone does this and mm-hmm. that's something to raise the bar of in the preaching world, I would hope. Yeah, good point. All right, his fourth objection is that he said that this leads to divisiveness. And so, again, he's quoting from Brian Chappell's book, which I actually appreciate the fact that this guy yeah. went and got quotes from actual Christ-centered uh, preaching things, at least from Brian Chappell. So he says, uh, Brian Chappell writes, To some degree, all Christ-centered preaching advocates argue that a sermon without Jesus Christ, the gospel, and the grace of God are sub-Christian. I've seen posts, uh, so now this is this person talking, and he says, I've seen posts on Facebook with the whole, quote, if someone preaches a sermon without pointing people to Christ, he should never be allowed behind the pulpit again. He says, what about the book of James? It doesn't talk much about salvation. Should we rip his epistle out of our Bibles? And he says, it's interesting, we who firmly hold to the grammatical historical hermeneutic, which I guess Mm -hmm. is what he calls his, Mm -hmm. uh, have been accused of divisiveness. But um, he says that he thinks that uh, the Christ-centered hermeneutic is basically creating a tiered system or a caste system, if you will, saying that those who don't hold to Christ-centered hermeneutics are of lower caste or value. Yeah. Well, maybe he saw that on the Expositor's Collective social media feed because <laughs> there is a, a Spurgeon quote and a variety of others. But, you know, Spurgeon has that kind of kind of bombastic, hyperbolic character that makes him so good, to, easy to quote, you know, where, yeah, he's, he said that, yeah, it's um, a sermon without Christ is like a, a loaf of bread with no flour and goes on to say those similar things about if if you preach a sermon without Christ that it should be your last sermon. So uh, yeah, I can't I can't dial that one back. And um, <laughs> I I believe okay, maybe there's a couple different things here. A there is like a sense of divisiveness that I think is just part of fallen our our fallen human nature, especially when somebody, especially when when a Christian or maybe anyone discovers something that they didn't know about before. And then they came across it and they, all of a sudden they think about every instructor that they've had up until that point, every preacher they've heard, every pastor they've had, every small group leader who didn't show them this wonderful insight that they just came upon. Then all of a sudden it can be like, oh, well, why have you kept this from me? And this is this wonderful, great truth. And, you know, we call that a cage stage in different circles or the rage stage when you just discover something and you're just kind of mad at everyone for keeping it from you up until that point. And that's not good. That's not, that's not exemplary. And certain people, when they come on different soteriological positions, or I guess it even exists in the preaching world, where all of a sudden it's like, hey, I've, I discovered this thing and uh, everyone else needs to get on board. However... We're talking about Jesus and his gospel, and we're saying we should talk about it more rather than less. So I think that there actually is a bit of like urgency that should be maintained. And maybe the language that I would speak to other preachers is maybe a little bit stronger than I would just, you know, in the pulpit to the rest of my congregation. But to say, like, why wouldn't you? Like, why would you withhold this good news? And if you think that there's a, a way in your passage to connect it, but yet out of like, out of principle or I know I'm talking about this author, but, but, you know, but, or out of like stubbornness or to prove a point, you're not going to, point people to Christ because of it, that's a very serious thing. And I hope that there's not some like interdenominational squabbles or mm-hmm. people that hold to one thing are trying to just prove that you can do a good message without mentioning Christ, like as an exercise or something. I think that'd be horrible. I don't think that's what our friend is saying, or your friend, or your friend, a friend. <laughs> I don't think that's what anyone's saying, but I would hate that somebody is going to be like, I'm going to, you think, you know, I don't mention Jesus. I'm just going to not mention Jesus even harder. And I'm going to show them. And I think that'd be so foolish. And I would not want to be, okay, I'm I'm done. I'm done. Nick, you talk. You're the nice one. You're the good cop. (laughs) (laughs) Well, think about it like this. If I know that you have a disease and I know what the cure for the disease is, but I'm like, hey, you have this disease. That's really bad. Well, 
end of end of my message. All right, right. now, um, and I don't give you the remedy which I know about. Mm-hmm. Like, how ridiculous is that? I mean, is that what the scriptures are about? Is just diagnosing our problems and telling us to fix ourselves when we actually have the remedy, the cure in Christ? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. that would be, I, I would say that that's a malpractice. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, imagining a church service where people pray in Jesus's name and sing songs to the risen Lord. And if, and again, thinking about a preacher, not a preacher who's never heard of this, but a preacher who's heard about it and decided that it's just, that's not what I'm going to do. Um, I think that's a, it's doesn't make me happy to to think about that because as we talked about in in the last in the last episode, um, you know, there's just an ongoing need day by day, week by week, from the people that attend that church who just need to hear the good news of Jesus and His gospel and and His forgiving love. And like on the one hand, I'm sure that every preacher is talking about God and is telling even true things about about the Bible. But I, I think like. Essentially, John chapter one says like, no one's ever seen God, but it's his son who's made him known. Mm-hmm. So if we want to understand God more, or if we want our, the hearers to understand God more, well, then we point towards Jesus, the perfect and the full revelation of him. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if, um, uh, here's one more thought. What if, um, do you think there's ever a place like, now you, you've had a Bible school at your church before. And we've had, we, we have kind of a, what we call a Bible learning center. So these mm-hmm, are kind of mm-hmm. like classroom style yeah. courses yeah. where I have, and where I've taught through books of the Bible, I've thought through concepts, but yeah, sometimes yeah. I teach through books of the Bible in that classroom setting. And so do you think that there's a difference between like, let's say a Bible college class and a Sunday sermon because in a Bible college class, I would say that, that and this is my opinion, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe you're going to rebuke me on this, I don't know, but <laughs> I would say that I think in a, a Bible college class, there can be a time when you say, you know, um, yeah, you know, this is what the text says, and this is the story, and then we're going to pick up in the next chapter in our next class. And I don't go through that whole process of, of leading them to Jesus. In many cases, I actually do. Mm-hmm. But I just think that, look, if maybe this is two different things, right? There's a difference between teaching in a classroom setting to help people understand what the Bible says uh, in that particular passage. And, you know, if that's your goal is to to do that. But if you're preaching on Sunday, you're proclaiming yeah. the gospel, you're preaching the text. Anyway, what do you think? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I see there's a difference between, let's say, a didactic um, way of working through scripture and then a charismatic way, you know? Didactic meaning just teaching, charismatic means proclaiming. And so I think that there is something about even the, the gathered assembly that deserves the, the town crier to say, hear ye, hear ye, here's, here's the good news for, for this week. So, yeah, I think so. In, in, Bible classes too. I, I think it's important to kind of even show, maybe not flesh it out in a sermonic way, but say, here are some of the, the connections. Here's this or that, or, or here's, here's how the, the New Testament quotes this passage and, and shows this and that, you know? Uh, and, and I think actually on that, and I, I had this thought earlier and I was kind of wondering where on the list I could, I could cram it in. Um, I, I also would just say like, like some of this just has to do with like, I think the act of, of preaching and the act of pastoring and shepherding people. Um, I think personally, as, as a pastor of a local congregation with people who, you know, like I'm going to bury them one day, you know, and um, I've, I've done their weddings and, you know, I just, I love these people and I want them to hear the good news of Jesus. And I also, I want their friends who they invite mm-hmm. to hear the good news of Jesus too. So while this is a conversation about hermeneutics and this is, might be getting into some of the, the logistics of it too, you know, I live in a city with a population of evangelical Christians of like one or 2%. And um, I don't know what the statistics are about Longmont, Colorado, um, but like there's not a city in the world except 
New Jerusalem, you know, where it's 100% Christian and there's not going to be even an evangelistic appeal. So I'm saying A, as a pastor of a congregation, and then also B, like a missional oriented Christian, um, I, I do want the message of Jesus to be explicitly connected as many times as I get a microphone and get to talk to a group of people. Yeah, I think it's also, you know, one of the things that I like to say is that um, good preaching comes from two loves, love of God and love for people. But think yeah. about that. If you love these people you're preaching to, they need Jesus. They need the solution. They need yeah. the, the, um, the thing which they can't do for themselves. They don't just need to be told, as Tim Keller would say, what they already know they're doing wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so let's move on to the fifth one here. He sure. says, fifth, it gives an imbalanced view of God. This is an interesting one, actually. He says, uh, Christian, Christianity is a Trinitarian religion. Whenever one member of the Godhead takes priority, bad things follow. So he points out that the Arian heresy was an overemphasis on the Father. Then he comes along, and by the way, he, he does come from a Pentecostal background, so he says this as a member of this body. He says, later, the Pentecostal movement came along with an imbalanced view of the Holy Spirit. Now, our Pentecostal listeners might disagree with that, whatever, but just know that this guy comes from that tribe. And now he says, we have the Christ-centered hermeneutic crowd, which is coming along with an imbalanced emphasis on the Son, which he says is admittedly less dangerous than um, the the prior ones that he mentioned, Arianism, of course, being uh, heretical, and Pentecostalism Thanks, being a uh, <laughs> uh, overemphasis in his opinion on the Holy Spirit. But he says, well, what about the Holy Spirit? The, as the one who breathed the scriptures, the Spirit is downplayed as men now seek their private Christocentric interpretations, which is a phrase that I disagree with, but moving on. What about the Father? We completely forget that Jesus is here to point to the Father. So, what do you think about this, Mike, uh, the claim that Christ-centered hermeneutics doesn't give enough attention to the Father and the Spirit? Yeah, I'd say, I'd say it's a thoughtful question. And um, even, you know, he's, he's pulled in some, some church history, which always means a lot to me. Whenever someone quotes church history, I'm like, yeah, that's great. Um, certainly not worthy to be in the same breath as Arianism. And I think he does a great job of, of making that distinction. Um, when I think about like Trinity, my mind goes to Fred Sanders, <laughs> the author of the great book called The Deep Things of God. Um, have you heard of it? Or you should get him on the show one day. That's what you should do. I He's haven't a, heard of it, but uh, I'm going to write Oh, the you're in for a treat. You're in for a treat. Um, it's a great book. Um, I love it very much. And I know that somewhere in this book, he wrote about this. And uh, the book is like, is, you know, 300 dense pages. And believe it or not, I actually have like a day job. I can't just sit around and do podcasts all the time. Um, so I wasn't able to like find the actual part of the book that he spoke about. So I tweeted him. Fred Sanders is alive and well and quite active on Twitter. And I said, hey, Fred. Um, where do you speak about, um, you know, Christ-centered preaching and the way that it has a potential to diminish the Trinity? Because again, Fred Sanders is like Mr. Trinity. Um, he wrote me back and said it's in the second edition of his book on chapter nine. So I pulled out my book and I realized, oh, this is first edition. Okay. And then I opened it up and it goes all the way to chapter seven. Um, so I need to buy the second edition so that I could find out what he thinks. He, he really ramped it up with that second edition. He really, he really did. <laughs> and he really wants to sell more copies. Um, but sorry, that's a very long winded way of, of saying that I did find an article um, and he writes this. You don't have to choose between being Christ-centered or being Trinity-centered. He says the simple reason for this is that Christ is Trinity-centered, right in the middle of the Trinity, as the Son sent by the Father and filled with the Spirit. If you focus on Jesus properly, you will find yourself necessarily focusing on the Trinity. As long as you don't focus on Jesus in a Father-forgetful or Spirit-ignoring way. So 
Mr. Trinity himself <laughs> says that it's possible, but also acknowledging, and much of this book is um, helping people to not fall into those two errors, father forgetful or spirit ignoring. He hmm. says, of course, Jesus is the most relatable. The whole point is that he came as a human to relate to humans, to be a sympathetic high priest. Um, it makes sense, you know? Also, you know, like, yeah, I, and and yeah. So he's he's saying that like, of course, Christ is is there in order for us to relate to him, and then also we have a unique love for him because you know essentially he's the one who gave his life for us. Um, but he says that we could honor him and focus on him, acknowledging, you know, the Father sent you and you obeyed, you know, um, and also you are the one uniquely filled with the Spirit, and you're the one as the Father sent you, so you send us, and you sent the Spirit spirit upon us, you know, John 21, you breathe the spirit. So I think he would say there's ways that we can honor and exalt Christ as the second member of the Trinity. And it takes, it takes conscious thought. It just means that we can't just always do the easiest, simplest thing, which is the Bible says to be justice, that we should do justice. Jesus received justice on the cross. Please trust him for salvation. Um, it involves ways of like pulling the camera back and seeing the, the three-dimensional the triune God, who the second person in the Trinity came, lived and died and rose for us. Yes, yeah. I, I would point to some other verses in the Bible. So here's here's one that I would point to. is in 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, it says that God was in Christ mm. reconciling the world to himself. Another verse that I would point to is in John chapter 5, where Jesus is uh, disputing and he says to these people who thought that Jesus was somehow, like focusing on Jesus would somehow diminish the honoring of the Father or dishonor the mm. Father by honoring mm. Jesus. Jesus mm. said this, um, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And then he adds, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, as you, you quoted John 1 earlier, saying yeah. that no one has seen God, um, but the only God... Jesus has made him known. And so, um, I think that he's kind of creating a, um, like a problem here that doesn't need to exist. I don't hmm. think the father is up there saying, ah, they're given too much attention to the son. Yeah. I want them to pay more attention to me. Right. 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 Um, so. Yeah. There's no discord in heaven about who gets the most song sung to them or, you know, if then, then the Holy Spirit would really be upset because <laughs> he hardly gets any <laughs> songs sung, sung to him. But yeah, that is a excellent, excellent point from John chapter five. Like you gotta honor the son in order to honor the father. Mm. Um, and I guess, yeah, that happens, let's say by default, but I, I, you know, speaking as even, you know, preacher to preacher on this, and I realize not everybody who listens to the Theology for the People podcast is a preacher, but I think that for those of us that are communicating God's word or highlighting um, this, that maybe it is worthwhile to take a little bit of this on board and think, hey, am I exalting Christ at the expense of the Spirit and the Father? And how can we show like that the works that he does and even calls us to do in response the spirit is enabling us to do so as well. So maybe consciously um, highlighting those. All right. So let's, let's move on to the sixth one. The sixth point is this. I find the, the phrasing of this is a little bit funny. He says, a little bristly, but uh, <laughs> yeah. he says, even if Christocentricity is right, it's still wrong. <laughs> By that, I mean that if every Old Testament text uh, that does not have a clear Christo Christological meaning actually has a hidden Christological meaning, then it would still point to the Son who in turn points to the Father. Wouldn't that put the Father, not the Son, and certainly not man, at the center of the text? Um, yeah, I just uh, don't even think this is, is really a good, good argument. Um, so he's saying even if every Old Testament passage has a Christological meaning, which again, in, we addressed this in our first episode. We're not trying to, by violence, cause mm. the text to talk about Jesus, even if it doesn't. What we're doing is saying, in some cases, in order to see how this text is, points to Christ, you have to zoom out. And in its broader context, it's part of a story, the story of Jesus. And so, um, he says, though, 
well, if the son points to the father, then ultimately isn't it all about the father? Um, sure. Uh, yeah. Mike, help me respond. Well, I mean, uh, certainly I'm just, I'm thinking of the two times the father spoke from heaven in, in the New Testament. And mm. perhaps the whole Bible, I'm not, you could correct me on that, but the two New Testament Vox days, when God spoke from heaven, he said the same thing twice. This is my beloved son, listen to him. So um, as much as it is true that the son honors the father, it also is true that the father honors the son. And mm. he, at, his, at the baptism and at the transfiguration, the father fixes the ears upon the, the person of the son. And so we should listen. So, I mean, if, if that chain of verses or logical chain says that, well, yes, even if it does point to Christ, Christ points to the father. Well, good news, the father points to the son and the spirit enables it all, we, we might say. Yeah, I, I think he's creating a competition here that doesn't exist. Here, check this out. This is Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. It says, Therefore, God highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Now listen to this. To yeah. the glory of God the Father. In other words, when Jesus is exalted... God receives glory. That's pretty important. Yeah. Wow. And first off, I'm actually memorizing that passage uh, this week. Um, the the larger paragraph. I'm doing a. I'm 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 doing a. Um, I've been doing this like discipleship program with uh, three guys in the church. They're all in their twenties, and we're actually going through like a, a book about proverbs. So we're going through proverbs, but it's kind of like organized categorically by different themes. Um, last time we talked about the ways to use our tongue and our words, and it was a really great conversation. And we spoke about, you know, the warnings against gossip, the value of truthfulness, et cetera, et cetera. And, and then this is what I did with my, with my guys, with these, these three guys in their twenties. Um, we kind of came to the end of our discussion thing and I said, okay, and guys, how, uh, I was going to say there's a point to this, but maybe there's not. <laughs> Um, but I was like, hey guys, how does this, what does, what does this teach us about like, about the gospel of Jesus? We haven't really mentioned him much in there. And what I didn't say was like, hey, what's the hidden clue? Where's, where's the this or that? Um, where's the, you know, it's, it says word here. And we know from John chapter one that Jesus is the word. So, how, but, I, but I've been training these guys to like, A, just be godly men. And then also B, to be Christian men. And then as we, considered long and hard all of the different ways that we're supposed to use our tongues or not use our tongues. Then at the end, I said, guys, what, what are some of the ways that like the gospel speaks to this? And it was just a great conversation where they're saying, you know, going to, I guess maybe let's say, some of them might say a, a man-centered thing where the first thing is like, well, we have forgiveness from God from, by, by Christ, even when we use our tongues in the wrong way. Okay. Yep. And then talking through also too, like, you know, we're also empowered by the spirit to use our tongues to speak God's word, or also even just to like, to honor the beauty that we see by calling it out and by naming it. And then someone was saying, you know, and also we can bring honor to God by like calling out the um, injustice that we see. And, and so that was like a very natural, maybe it kind of fits in this conversation a little bit where it's like, what we're doing is we're looking at Proverbs as Proverbs. We're looking at it mm -hmm. as wisdom for life. And then also I'm as the pastor, as a disciple, I'm just saying, okay. And then at the end of this, before we leave, how does this point us towards like the greatest need that we have? Because it's not that the greatest need of humanity is that we use naughty words or we lie too much. Like this connects to something bigger. And it just, mm -hmm. we've been doing this for like a year. And so it's actually been really great to be able to kind of sit back and let them preach the gospel to me from this theme. So it's not saying there's a hidden meaning in Proverbs 18, 17. It's saying this concept, this theme reminds me of the greatest need that I have and the great provision that God has for me. Mm, that's awesome. All right, our seventh um, objection is this. He says, it fails to answer the question, why can't we redefine the New Testament to read a new prophet into every text? Um, I'm going to be honest with you, Mike. I, I went to school for a long time, and I do not understand this question. Do you have any idea what this means? 
I'll be honest with you, Nick, I haven't gone to school for as long as you have. Um, but I uh, think that maybe this might be inspired by Islam. Um, that's that's my, my thought. The way that in Islam, it says that just as much as the Old Testament pointing towards Christ, um, and then they would say, and the New Testament points towards uh, Muhammad. And oh. um, and I'm and I'm not an Islamic scholar, and I I don't want to misrepresent, but I th- I know that in John chapter fourteen and sixteen, where it speaks about the Comforter who is to come, rather than understanding that as the Holy Spirit, which it quite literally, plainly, that's what Jesus explains it to be. Um, but that is kind of a foreshadow of a future um, prophet to come, and you know his name is Muhammad, and that's why they have kind of essentially the third testament, which is the the Quran. Okay. I'm just trying to understand it as, as best as possible. I, sure. I, I, uh, what would be your response to it? I like the, I, the scriptures, they're not a wax nose. You know, you can't, um, that's a phrase, um, uh, the marble statues, like in Rome, um, <laughs> the nose would often fall off because it's the most prominent. My, my nose is more prominent than most. So maybe, <laughs> I, um, but like, um, like, like the, the Sphinx in Egypt, you know, it's the nose that falls off. And for like these marble statues, um, oftentimes they'd have a, a wax nose, um, to replace the fallen off nose. But the problem is you could also twist it and mold it any way you wanted to. Scriptures aren't like that. There really is like meaning in the text mm-hmm. and we can use, and the grammatical historical method has been mentioned earlier on, like Believe it or not, I'm actually a big fan. And I think you mm-hmm. are too, Nick. Like, yeah. that's just a good Bible understanding. It's like, what is the grammar? Which means, what's the dictionary? You know, um, what's the historical? That's the significance. That's the meaning. So there really are um, ways and means to understand things. And if somebody says this is actually pointing towards Zenu or Marduk or Rick and Morty, whatever. Like, it's like, well, mm-hmm. no, we're, we're, that's not it. And, and here's the reasons why. So I think I don't want to spend too much time on that one. I think that's the, no offense, that's the weakest one. Okay. Let's, uh, eighth and final one. Home stretch. It misses the clear instruction to preach the word from 1 Timothy 4, verse 2. When we add foreign meanings to the text, we have abandoned the word. I think, Mike, we've said quite repeatedly and clearly that this is not a foreign meaning to the text. Rather, Uh. this is the proper understanding of the text in light of the fact that the Bible is a book about Jesus. So yeah. any any further thoughts? Well, I, I opened up to 1 Peter chapter 1. I referenced it earlier on. I just think maybe it's worth it to, to talk about it. Um, it speaks about, you know, Christ has come. Though you haven't seen him, you love him. Although you don't see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the salvation that fills you and me with glory and joy, um, this is the salvation that the prophets prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and they inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the suffering glory. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, things in which angels even long to look into. So there's a lot of like tenses back and forth in there, but it's like, it's this gospel hope that that Peter and we rejoice in. And he says, this is something that the prophets wrote about unbeknownst, unbeknownst to them. And that that is something that sometimes people have a bit of pushback to. It's like, well, wait a minute, are, are you reading something into the Old Testament writings that even the authors themselves didn't know? Mm-hmm. Peter's like, yeah, yeah, we are. And, and the spirit of Christ, interesting phrase, was writing about the sufferings of Christ. And the prophets, they diligently were like, Isaiah was like, who is this suffering servant? I don't mm-hmm. get it. Is it? Is it Israel? Is it us? I don't, I don't you know? Mm-hmm. And he probably died. I, I was going to say, he probably died not knowing. He probably knew the second he opened his eyes after he died. Um, Oh, you're the suffering servant. But I'm sure up until that moment of his death, maybe he even had this bit of like a cloud of unknowing about who he is. So, yeah. So preaching the word as it's written 
I mean, like according to the grammatical historical method to take that nakedly or strictly, it's like, well, you only preach it as Isaiah understood it. Seems like there even was a limit to what Isaiah did. But due to the nature of what's called, you know, progressive revelation, it's like more things take place that then shed light upon it as, as the, as the sun sets, you know, the, the light shines on different parts and we're able to see things, um, more. And so you and I, although it sounds arrogant, we actually have more insight into what God is doing than Isaiah, Micah, Jonah, Nahum, all of them. We're able to, because of the perspective that we have, um, they may be godlier than we, they might've traveled further in the belly of a fish than we have, but we know more about God's plan of redemption than they do. And that's a humble thing that I want to posit. So it fails to preach the word as is written. I would say, okay, we actually, we do want to preach the word and then we're able to even say a little bit more than what's written because of what came next afterwards. That's going to be maybe one thought. I have a second thought too, but do you want to chime in on that? Yeah, I will chime in real quick and just say this. Um, so first of all, you know, it means, brings us back to Luke 24 and it says that Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That means that prior to understanding that the scriptures spoke of him, they did not understand the scriptures fully. So I don't, I don't think it's arrogant. I get your point though, mm-hmm. um, that it could sound that way. I don't think it's arrogant at all. I okay. think it's actually exactly what the Bible's saying, including that passage you read from one Peter. Here's the other thing I find really fascinating Jesus himself did this with passages about the Old Testament. He applied them to himself and gave them a meaning which the original authors would not have intended, but which the Holy Spirit intended. Mm. And here's an example. Jesus says, um, what the Matthew says, this was to fulfill, this was to fulfill what was written, out of Egypt I have called my son. Now, when that was originally written, it was speaking of Israel. But the gospel writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, yes, it was referring to Israel, and it's also referring to Jesus. Uh, Other examples, you know, Jesus is taking passages from the Old Testament and saying, this is what was spoken regarding me. And so, I think that this is actually inherent to the way that Jesus and the gospel writers used the Bible. Yeah, and that's that's valuable, and I think that might all that maybe fits under let's say Old Testament um, understanding that there is a newer Testament understanding that you know it's it's an upgrade you know it's 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 mm-hmm. worth you know why you have an old iPhone like you can get a free upgrade and and so we should have the upgraded Testament you know and allow that to speak and inform the the previous one and then maybe. Like here's a second thing, New Testament stuff. Here's here's something that some people, I, I think that Christ-centered preachers need to hear this as well too. We need to also preach the word as it's written. And that includes even, even the New Testament. Talking about, you know, justice, which has been kind of our recurring go-to thing. We really need to preach that as God calls you to love mercy and do justice. That, that really is there. Um, we don't want to, and, and this is sometimes an accusation of Christ-centered preachers that we like ignore the imperatives of scripture, that scripture does say to do something. And Mm -hmm. we might, in order to like defend God's honor, be like, oh, it doesn't actually mean do it because it's already been done in Christ. So you just rest in the fact that Christ has done it for you. Um, That's that's maybe a good impulse, but that's not the best way to teach the Bible. We actually say, and actually do this, actually obey this. I, and I, this is this is maybe maybe the final thing I'll say on this, and this podcast has gone a bit long, probably, um, but it's a bonus. What a gift! What a <laughs> gift to your hearers, Nick, that you've given them such a long episode. Um, last week was long, and this one is is long too. But here, I want to. This is my important thing to say. We are hundred percent opposed to moralism, um, but we're not opposed to morality. Mm. Um, I think there is like ethics and the Bible has a lot, the book of Proverbs, et cetera, talks about how we should live. And yeah. so we do want to pass that on to people. God cares about how you live. He cares about your morals. Mor- moralism 
is to say, and if you aren't good enough, then you're damned. And you've mm-hmm. got to keep being good enough to stay, to stay safe. So we reject moralism, but we also want to preach the word as it's written, morals and all. I want to call people to the changed lives that Christ died to save, the spirit enables us to obey, and the father instituted this whole plan. So not opposed to morality, but we are opposed to moralism. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. Well, with that, I'm going to just close down this episode. Thanks so much for joining me for two episodes this week. I enjoyed the conversation. Hope our hearers did as well. What are we doing next week, Nick? I can't wait. (laughs) We'll find something, I'm sure. (laughs) Hey, can I plug Expositors Collective? Because you're on this week as well. Actually, if people like hearing you and me talk, this is, we are all over the place. Um, Yeah. Whenever this comes out, um, episode, um, I think it's 189, I believe. Um, it's called um, How to Prepare uh, How to Prepare Engaging Introductions. Does that sound right to you, Nick? Yeah. Yeah, and again, Something. guys, even if you're not a preacher, it's worth it just to hear Nick talk about storytelling. Um, he is a good storyteller, and he also is good at telling stories about how to come up with stories. So uh, if you like listening to me and Nick talk, Uh, you're in luck because we're talking all over the internet this week. Yeah. Yeah. So check out the Expositors Collective podcast and you can check Mike out at calvarycork.org. O-R-G. Yeah. Calvarycork.org. And uh, God bless you, Mike. Thank you for being with us.